Turn with me if you're in your Bible to Luke chapter 11, if you will. Luke chapter 11. There are certain texts in the Bible which have transformed my thinking, and we come to one of those today. So I uh, preach this with great joy, but also with some concern that I be able to uh, uh, explain to you uh, what I came to understand in this passage and praying that its effect might on, on you might be as profound as it has been on me. Let me read it. Luke 11, verses 14, down through 28. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. In this text, Jesus is teaching us two different things. He's uh, teaching us about himself, his agenda, what he's doing this, in this world. And he teaches us about ourselves, making clear what we are to be doing in response to him. That gives us two truths. The first is this. No one can stop Jesus' kingdom. No one can stop Jesus' kingdom. History testifies to us that uh, nations rise and nations fall. Economic woes, corruption, formidable enemies, uh, internal strife, all kinds of things bring nations down. So when a young nation like ours faces overwhelming problems, there are always some who wonder if it will survive. But in our text, Jesus indicates that there should be no question whatsoever about the kingdom he advances. No one can stop Christ's kingdom. Now make no mistake, the obstacles Jesus faced are unparalleled. 
our nation faces some huge problems right now, economic woes and political division. But Jesus faced the opposition of Satan himself and his hosts of demonic powers. Now, in our day, we don't think much about supernatural evil, which only shows how ignorant we have become of reality. For the Bible clearly says that the world is naturally under the control of Satan and his hosts. We read it in 1 John 5. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. We read it again in Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In Matthew 4, this was Satan's claim as uh, 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 as he tempted Jesus, and Jesus did not dispute it. The devil took Jesus to a very high place, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, and he says, I, w- I will give you all this, Satan said, if you will just worship me. Jesus doesn't worship him, but he doesn't question whether it all belonged to him. In our text this morning, we see Jesus, though, demonstrating his power to defeat Satan. Jesus had cast out demons many times before. Indeed, people brought their loved ones to Jesus to have them delivered. And so here, when Jesus encountered a man possessed uh, by a mute demon, he drove the evil spirit out of him, freeing the man to speak. Well, the people were amazed, as you would have been, as I would have been. Except for some, who then went on the attack. Interestingly, they did not question whether this miracle happened. Everyone knew that it did. Instead, they accused Jesus of acting by the power of Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub, or more properly Beelzebul, was a popular name for Satan, the prince of demons. In other words, this accusation was one of unparalleled blasphemy. They assigned God's work done through Jesus to the devil himself. So Jesus confronted them, confronted their logic. He said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. I'm sure you've heard that quote. If you ever wonder where it came from, this is where it came from. Not from Abraham Lincoln. This is where he got it. What he was saying is simple. If a general orders his army to destroy his own troops, you don't need to fight against that general. He will do it for himself. He will destroy himself. If Satan orders his own troops to destroy each other, they would long since be gone. This accusation against Jesus was irrational. It was self-contradictory. Jesus goes on to refute it in a second way. If if his distractors want to say that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan, they must logically say that everyone who has ever cast out demons must have been working by the power of Satan, which includes some exorcists of the time and includes the prophets of old and many of God's people through the ages. Thus, all those people would be their judges. The truth of the matter is, Jesus said, he casts out demons by the finger of God, according to verse 20. That's strange language to us, perhaps, but that's the language used by Pharaoh's magicians back in ancient Egypt. 
when the plagues that God brought upon Egypt demonstrated that God's power was way beyond the power of their magic, they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You've got to let these people go. So as Jesus came to bring deliverance from Satan's dominion, which the Exodus had only foreshadowed, he showed himself to be God's deliverer by casting out demons by the finger of God. But Jesus does not just stop with an explanation of the source of his power. He goes on to talk about what this all means. In verse 20, he says, If then I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. That's impossible to overstate the significance of that statement. People argue about Jesus' agenda and what he knew and what he was up to, and people argue even more about the kingdom and when and where and how the kingdom will appear. We can go around and round and round with people's speculation. But Jesus sets the truth before us plainly. In fact, Matthew's record virtually says the same thing in Matthew 12. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In short, what God had been promising for centuries in regard to his kingdom came to fulfillment in Jesus. And now nothing can stop that kingdom's advance. Oh, it's true. We've not seen displayed yet all the ramifications of the reign of Christ. But don't make the mistake of thinking that his kingdom is some future thing after the Lord comes. You will find yourself disagreeing with Christ himself, who says it is already a reality. The king has already come. Oh, but Jesus is not done yet. He has a story to explain, to, to, to tell, to explain the advance of his kingdom. Look at verse 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house and his possessions, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Perhaps it would be helpful to read Matthew's account where the same, Jesus says the same thing with a few different words. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. This is a bit of, a, of an obscure statement. What's Jesus saying here? Well, Satan is the strong man he's talking about. <clears throat> he holds his household with absolute uh, iron-fisted control. All those under his charge, he holds on to. He has great power. He protects his household. You can't take what's his because he's strong. He's well armed. But Jesus has appeared. And he's stronger. Indeed, he has now attacked and overpowered Satan. He has bound him up, tied him. So that Satan can no longer stop Jesus 
from plundering his household, taking his servants away, setting them free right and left. Satan cannot stop him. The very fact that this mute man was delivered from the demon that possessed him showed that Satan could not stop Jesus from plundering his house, taking away his servants. And what Jesus suggested in this cryptic language, the rest of the New Testament says very plainly. We read in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. According to Colossians 2.15, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. So that now the Spirit bears testimony to his victory in Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. What's that? That's Satan's kingdom. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Make no mistake, Satan himself cannot stop Jesus from setting his people free. No one can stop Christ's kingdom. Oh, I hear your objection. You only have to look around. You see Satan is still very alive and well on the earth. Indeed, doesn't the scripture say that he goes around like a roaring lion seeking who he may destroy? That's true. We don't see this all worked out yet. And indeed, the scriptures admit that the whole creation groans as in the pain of childbirth, waiting for all this to be finished. That we ourselves have the spirit groan inside, waiting for it to all be complete. But the outcome is not uncertain. It is only the way that his kingdom will come about that confuses us. When Jesus speaks of total victory over Satan, of attacking him and overpowering him and tying him up and plundering his house, we we think in very militaristic terms. We want to start thinking of coercion and the use of force and raise an army and go and kill off all those pagans. Or at least they're not using violence, at least wield some political and financial and institutional clout to get things done like the world gets them done. But that's not how Jesus defeated Satan. And it's not what he calls us to. Jesus won this ultimate battle with Jesus by getting hung on a cross and apparently defeated himself. He gained eternal life for us by dying. And now he calls us to follow in his steps to die to ourselves, to die to our desires, to die to our dreams, to lay down our lives, to give all we are and all we have and all that we could be that the gospel might be proclaimed and the kingdom of God advanced. And it will advance. One by one, people hearing the message of the gospel and believing and being changed, being set free. Enemies Not killed and destroyed, but transformed and made the children of God. And when that takes place, eventually even society feels its impact. This morning, though it may not look like it to you, I proclaim to you with absolute certainty, the kingdom of God has begun. 
and no one can stop the advance of Christ's kingdom. Now that truth has profound implications for us. We talked about some of them, about dying. But that brings us to a second thing that this passage teaches us about us. That's this. You cannot remain neutral. You cannot remain neutral. In our culture, there's a standing caricature of men uh, that they fear commitment. I don't believe it's quite that simple, but everyone knows the joke, don't they? It makes for good television commercials and sitcoms and whatever. And it does raise the legitimate issue of how frustrating it is to deal with people who will never commit. But the truth is, many people in our culture try to remain neutral, uncommitted, in regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. Few want to openly reject him, some do, but fewer still want to radically follow him. That's what Jesus is facing here in Luke 11, the many faces of refusal to commit. The many ways it looks when people are trying to remain neutral. So let's consider the different ones we find here. I find three different ones, and I kind of gave them names. The text doesn't say that. They're mine. First of all, in the text, we find the skeptic. The skeptic. The skeptic here admits that Jesus did an impressive miracle. No one denied that the mute man had been delivered from the power that possessed him. The whole crowd was amazed by that. But the skeptic wants to find a different interpretation of it. In fact, he wants a little more evidence. Show us a sign from heaven, he says. A sign from heaven. Jesus has done nothing but signs and wonders for chapters here. That's what's under discussion, a sign from heaven. But you see, that's how the skeptic is. Always skeptical. Because to admit the obvious, that Jesus, by the power of God, defeated Satan's power. To admit what everybody had seen would demand that the skeptic abandon his skepticism and get up and follow Christ. And folks, the world is still full of skeptics. In our day, it's not necessarily always popular to be anti-Christ, but we're getting there. But it is certainly considered more noble, more intellectual, more... Uh, learned to be a skeptic. And it's considered absolutely absurd, even lacking integrity, to actually believe. No wonder skepticism has invaded the church, too. People stand in the pulpit and preach Jesus, but it's not a Jesus who could deliver people from Satan's dominion. And churches are filled with people wanting to help the downtrodden, but often without any thought that Jesus could actually deliver them from their bondage to sin. And so our society and often our churches take up the stance 
of the skeptic. Not wanting to be thought a wicked adversary of God, just wanting to remain somewhat neutral to avoid becoming a fanatic. But in verse 23, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. According to Jesus, there are only two stances we can take here, folks. He says, you can be my disciples, follow me, labor with me, give yourself to the advance of my kingdom, or you can be my enemy. Refusing to believe, questioning my motives, attributing my work to something else, trying to undo my work, setting yourself against my kingdom. There is no middle ground, though. You cannot remain neutral. Well, it's not just the skeptics. There's another attempt at neutrality here. I, I, I find here what I would call the moralist, secondly. The moralist. The moral world may have lots of skeptics, but mostly we think people are good, morally upstanding folks. But even if that's true, they're often trying to remain neutral. Consider the interesting statement that Jesus makes in verses 24 to 26. Let me read it again. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And their final condition of that man is worse than the first. Here Jesus is clearly talking about a man, a person, who has been delivered from Satan's power. Verse 24 says the evil spirit came out of him. Verse 25 says his house, probably his body, his life, is clean and in order. He's not possessed of evil. I would suggest this man's situation is what we would probably call the moralist. Moralists believe human beings innately have a moral compass. Those morals may come from the deity or may they come from society, it doesn't matter, but whatever the origin, a person has a moral compass that uh, guides him, that uh, uh, is a guiding hand for his life. And In other words, there's no need for God to intervene. People just live morally upright lives. Unfortunately, that didn't work for this man. He had his life all cleaned up. But in the long run, his situation became worse than it was at the beginning. For the spirit that once possessed him brought many others more wicked than itself, all of whom then possessed the victim. So what was wrong? What was lacking here? How did this come to happen? Well, Jesus doesn't actually say, but it would seem that what was lacking was the presence of the Spirit of God. Without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, even a man delivered from his past is powerless in the face of evil. Even if it's different demons than possessed him before. 
I remember arguing this case with a young man back in New Jersey. He was in jail for drug-related things when I talked to him repeatedly. But he was convinced he had his drug habit under control and he had his life cleaned up and he was about to get out and he was very confident and he was going to go and do good and be fine. And I kept telling him, you know, you may have one demon cleaned up, but there there are many others. You need Christ in your life. Or you'll just go into more respectable, or more respectable uh, things that will destroy just as certainly as the drugs were destroying you. But he was convinced, no, his house was in order and he could handle it. And out he went and I did not hear from him again. Though I heard a couple of years later he committed suicide. There's no middle ground. Either a man is controlled by Satan and his spiritual powers, or a man is controlled by Christ and his spirit. You cannot remain neutral. Now this is, this is craziness in the way the world thinks. This is what Christ says. You can be against me, you can be for me, but you cannot be neutral. You can follow as my disciple, or you can be my enemy, trusting yourself to keep your house in order, but ultimately still in the power of the evil one. Well, finally in our text, there's a third attempt to remain neutral. There's a strange statement that we find in the last verse. And here I think we see the romantic, another attempt to remain neutral. By romantic, I'm not talking about the artistic and literary movement of the 18th century. I'm using the term loosely to refer to those who are driven by their feelings, driven by nostalgia, by unrealistic idealism, by sentimental religious notions. That seems to describe the woman who spoke in verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Now one can understand how a woman impressed with Jesus would think how blessed his mother must be to have had such a son. And Jesus certainly does not disparage his mother here by suggesting she was not blessed. Indeed, that was God's promise to her. You are highly favored. That was Elizabeth's statement to her. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you bear. Jesus does not dispute any of that. But what if in question, I think, is the appropriateness of that comment in this context. Jesus is talking about this life and death conflict between two kingdoms, between himself and the forces of evil. He's explaining that the advance of his kingdom demands all of our allegiance. Indeed, he is giving no one any neutral place to stand. You're either with me or you are against me. And in the middle of that teaching, this woman, apparently quite detached from the content of it all, is busy reflecting on how great it must be to have a boy like this, how proud his mother must be. And Jesus seems to see that as another attempt, though filled with warm religious emotion, another attempt to remain detached and neutral 
and not driven to two sides. For Jesus' response is to say, no, blessed are those who hear God's word and do it. Kind of a harsh answer, is it not? To such a warm, sentimental feeling. But Jesus is saying anything less than hearing and doing God's word is an, is an attempt to evade the commitment. Actually, I'm amazed by how often these romanticized, idealized, may I say, schmaltzy expressions of Christianity come my way. Sometimes they border on superstition. superstition. It's, it's, It's nuts. But again, Jesus said in verse 23, Who is he who is not with me is against me. Who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus clearly says there are only two stances you can take. You can be my disciple, listening to me, obeying my word, giving yourself to the kingdom. Or you can be my enemy, though you may be religious, sentimental, enamored by the romance of it all, but ultimately still aloof from the hard choices that you have to make. There is no middle ground. You cannot remain neutral. Oh, the caricature of hating commitment is actually quite true, is it not? It may be more true of men than women, I don't know. But nowhere is it more obvious than in regard to the radical claims of Christ. We will gladly play the skeptic. We will be proud of being a skeptic. We will gladly reassure ourselves that we are living a morally upright life and that's good enough. We might even entertain some warm, fuzzy religious notions. By any means possible, we want to remain detached, to preserve our freedom, to not be completely committed for life and death. But Jesus says there's no place to stand, no such place. If you're not for me, you are against me. If you're not laboring in the advance of the kingdom, you are standing in my way as my enemy. You cannot remain neutral. As Joshua said to the ancient children of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Two truths to take home. No one can stop Jesus' kingdom. It has appeared. Satan's kingdoms are being plundered. You you cannot stop him. And you cannot remain neutral. The kingdom for which Jesus went to the cross demands the same life and death commitment from you. We may think of a thousand reasons to sit on the fence. But if Jesus really is the risen king of kings, none of those reasons is good enough. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, it's hard for us to hear things that are so black and white. Give us grace, Lord, to understand the power of your kingdom advancing. To bow in submission to such a great king that we have. And Lord, to lay down our lives, to put ourselves in your hands, to do with us as you please, that your kingdom might advance. Forbid, Lord, that we should sit on the fence. That we should try any of our many tricks to remain neutral. 
Oh God, grant us a grace of deep allegiance to Jesus. Amen.